So as I was driving home one day this week, I got to my street, looked down my street, and I saw a big, heavy-duty, white pickup truck in front of my house. Then I saw a bobcat and a mini excavator just tearing through the area between my yard and my neighbor's yard. And I'm wondering, is the city do, what is this, what's going on here? Is the city doing a project on my, on my yard? I got closer, sort of investigated, took my kids out with me, and we went and saw that my neighbor Mary had her fence removed and a big hole in the ground, and they're carting dirt out to the street. And what was going on here, of course, but a new swimming pool right next door to me. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, I'm having flashes of the last three or four years. Wondering, have I been good to Mary? <laughs> have I been kind to her? Been a good neighbor? Maybe my good works have outweighed my grumpiness or my not being a good neighbor. Because I'm really hoping that she's going to invite my, my family and I over for pool time sometime. That's what I'm hoping. Cross my fingers that Mary will be gracious to me. You know, that's what I think that, you know, we think the kingdom of God and Jesus is like the neighbor with the pool. Like, we really didn't know there was that much going on here. We didn't know that all of our actions were going to have some kind of consequence here. We didn't know there was going to be a pool, okay? And now, now I've got to, you know, kind of worry, have I been good enough you know, to, to get in, to get an invitation to get over there? And that's religion. That, that's I, I, have I, has my religious devotion to Mary, my neighbor, not the mother of Jesus, been good enough to get me into the pool? And so in the context of what we're reading today, Jesus has been marching towards Jerusalem throughout all of the Gospel of Luke. He's moving towards Jerusalem. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, he takes on the religious authorities head on. And he says, essentially, you guys are hypocrites. What you're doing cannot bring you into the presence of God. All of us are going to die. And Jesus knew that, that his death was actually going to be the thing that would bring us life, that would bring us into the presence of God. He's going to Jerusalem to be crucified for the people. So two chapters earlier, he enters into Jerusalem with much fanfare. Um, if, you, if you've been to, the, to a church the Sunday before Easter, uh, they call that the triumphal entry. Two chapters before. He's received by the masses. He's the promised king to rescue Israel from oppression. Okay, and so most of this material in Luke post-triumphal entry to two chapters after this, which is the crucifixion, is critiquing the religious authorities. The religious observances done merely to appease the gods by one's own power out of a sense of obligation. He's saying that's ineffectual. Religious devotion from your own power to appease the gods out of a sense of obligation, ineffectual. Simply offering a sacrifice, simply giving something away, cannot buy you out of hell or earn your way into heaven. It, can't acquire, it cannot acquire divine favor at all. So what then are we make of religious observances and sacrifices? What are, we, what, what, are, what are they good for? Well, I believe they're good for telling our spiritual temperature, maybe. 
they have a good amount of, you can, you can kind of look at them and say, well, what's in this person? What's inside this person? What's in this person's heart? But we know that tools and tests can be tricked, don't we? We knew that we can beat tools and tests. If you've ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know that parents can easily be tricked into giving you an off day from school, can't they? Doctors can be fooled about true health. In the movie, Ferris, in very opening scenes, deceives his parents that he's sick. Uh, when they leave, he looks right at the camera, Matthew Broderick, and he says, Parents always fall for the clammy hands. It's physical evidence of illness. It's a good, non-specific symptom. Parents are generally pretty hip to the fever scams, and to make them work, you have to go to 101, 102, and you get a nervous mother at that point, and you might end up in the doctor's office, which is worse than school. So, if you fake a stomach cramp, and when you're doubled over and moaning and wailing, just lick your palms. Lick your palms. It's a little stupid and childish, but then so is high school, right? So, he fakes his own sickness and gets to have the day of his life with his friends playing hooky from school. Save Ferris, people are crying because he's really sick. Okay, religious observances are just our fever scams sometimes, aren't they? Just our licked palms, fooling others, our outworking of genuine devotion and faith. We're trying to put on, right? The text we're going to read shows us that's not the amount of charity we offer in our lives, not the, not the passing the test, or comparing ourselves to others and what they're doing. Our giving won't impress God, but real faith impresses God. Jesus gave a picture of how one could diagnose who might be faking it and who had true faith in God. Let's look at it. Luke 21, 1-4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's bow and pray. Lord God, we pray today that you would write these eternal truths on our hearts, that you would allow us and enable us to see, you would allow us to have ears to hear, that you'd help us to connect the dots, that you would show us that we lack no good thing, that you are the King who is the Maker, Defender, Redeemer, and our friend. In such doing, would, we, would you give us a heart that is willing to, to, to sacrifice all things because we have a treasure in you. Help us, we pray, to grasp the faith of the poor widow, faith in you. In Christ we pray. Amen. So the test, which gives 99% accuracy to diagnose spiritual condition, is not how much you give away, but does an individually intentionally give away everything? Are you willing to give away everything you have for the sake of Jesus? Is that, is that for you? Is that you? Jesus watched the rich people giving away a lot into the temple boxes. 
And you can imagine everyone ooing and aahing. Oh, he just gave away so much. Look at that. And then no one's paying attention to this easily ignored poor widow who was actually doing something quite extraordinary. She came to the temple in Jerusalem, walked up to the temple, up the mountain, under the temple, into the courts. As far as she could get, she, she had to stop at the, at the court of the women. It's as far as she had access. And right there in the court of the women, there's these 13 receptacles. And she goes up there, takes all the money she has in the world, and throws it in. She goes as far as possible and gives everything she has. Now, all the commentators that I've read say that the two small copper coins were the smallest possible coins and were known as leptons. A lepton is worth an eighth of a cent each. So she has in her savings a quarter of a cent. She's poor. And each lepton she is giving means she's not going to be able to eat for a time. She is giving up basic necessities. In contrast to the rich who had plenty, she's going to take a real hit here for her gifts. She could have just given up one, but she decides to give up two, all that she has. Now, the rich sacrifices mean that they're not going to be able to go to Disney World this year. They might have to settle for Dollywood or Six Flags, okay? They can't afford vacation home in the Hamptons, but they can still afford one in Destin. Not too bad. They can't wear David Yearman or Gucci, but they can still rock the good stuff at Target. Okay, they're going to be all right. So each person in the story is giving up something. The basic message Jesus uses the widow to demonstrate is that we shouldn't just pat ourselves on the back for our holiness in our giving. When we complete our annual volunteer hours at the soup kitchen, Jesus is saying, hey, call me when you actually adopt a homeless person. Okay, I'm not impressed yet. I mean, call me. So our problem is we like to, to keep faith at arm's length. We want to be religious without losing. Say it again. We want to be religious, but we don't want to lose. We don't want to lose that what we have. We want to be religious without losing. We don't want to be too extreme. We don't want to be too religious. We don't want to be labeled as a Jesus freak. Now, I'm a professional Christian, okay, which is weird, okay? My parents, when, they, when I told them I was going to be a professional Christian, a minister, um, they were a little alarmed, okay? I was majoring in mechanical engineering at Southern Methodist University. And, I, and you know, I started out as a, a Baptist, and then when I told them I was going to be a Presbyterian, they like, were like, so glad you said that because look you know a Presbyterian has cocktail party respectability right Baptists are like evangelistic ninjas okay thankful and thankful I didn't say Mormon because we all know they're really weird okay like so like but like Presbyterian does have a little bit of respectability I'm not those poorly educated simpletons the fundamentalists you know um, there's there's you know respectability for Presbyterians, Methodists, but if you're Baptist or Church of Christ or something extreme like that, I'm sorry to like throw out names of other denominations, but that's what people think. Okay, non-denominational here. If you're a, if you're a Christian who's non-denominational, um, 
that's like a wild card, you know? And so like that whingy street cred with, with Christians, religious millennials, if you will, but nobody else thinks that's cool, okay? Like, so nobody thinks you're cool. Um, you're not going to be respectable if you're going to church. Um, nobody. But Presbyterian did have a little bit of acceptability because they're thinking, you know, they're, they're afraid I'm going to be this nutcase religious guy uh, and then I'm going to have very little and I'm not going to have anything and, and I'm going to go to far reaches of the world and try to reach people for Christ and I think if I'm Baptist I'm going to do that but I'm not going to do that from Presbyterian. Okay. Um, they're not going to be able to see their grandkids ever because doing missions, you know. There's, there's concern. So, they're thinking, hey, he's hedging here. He's, and we're going to benefit from this. You know, and so if our problem is, you know, hey, I'm going to just give one lepton and I'm going to keep the other lepton for myself, which is what my parents think I'm doing. You know, that's what we want to do. We don't want Jesus to mess up our dating lives. We don't want him to compel me to have to love and care for people that are different than me. We want to just be able to keep the way I'm living and add a little religion in there and get invited to the pool party. That's what we really want. Jesus doesn't need to mess with my politics, my racism, my forgiveness I should hold or I shouldn't withhold. Okay? We're all good at Ferris Buellering our way through life when it counts to religious stuff. We can have our off days and convince others that we're religious enough. And we actually can start believing that ourselves if we hear people affirm us enough. Okay, and so the serious question for us is how much of your religious identity is wrapped up in approval from people? How much of your religious identity is wrapped up in what people think about you? From a pastor, from your elders, from a religious friend? We go around looking for approval to validate us, just like every relationship. So think about... When you tell jokes, you make people laugh, and it feels good, right? Every school kid knows that, right? When you tell jokes and people laugh, you feel like you're in. Now, in church, when you can learn to pray real good in front of people, and people give holy grunts, okay? When they're like, hmm, yeah, right. Um, When you're praying, you feel validated. You're like, man, I am spiritual, And I put stocks in those holy grunts. That's recognition. Maybe I am holy. But it's all a shell game. You know, like Michael Scott, if you ever know who that, if y'all know who that is, he's the boss in the office. And uh, he's a great parody of how we all are, right? We all want to be the man. And so he's the boss, so he always sets the terms of the office. And on the Christmas party episode, he has, he has ordered everyone to participate in the secret Santa game where everyone brings a gift and you exchange gifts, right? Well, he put a $20 limit on all the gifts, but he himself did not abide by those rules. He brought in what at the time was a $400 iPod. And so everyone wants his gift. And so for a time, he's the man. It's exactly the way he orchestrated it, right? He's the man because he needs approval and recognition. He needs to be the guy. And so Jesus is saying, look, just because people are impressed with you and what you're giving, you've brought the cool gift to the temple today, 
and the size and the show and the quantity and the externals, and they all mean nothing. The crowds marvel at rich things all the time, and it means nothing. Think about all the 15 minutes of fame people we've known in our lifetime, you know, people who got to be really popular and now they're nothing. Um, everyone yesterday around, oh, it was around 6 o'clock, thought that Arkansas was done. Oh, I know, it's too soon. They were down to fourth and 25 at the 30-yard line in overtime, down by a touchdown. They had no chance. The quarterback threw a pass that was 10 yards short of the first down on fourth down and 25. And as soon as Hunter Henry just threw the ball kind of randomly, Alex Collins picks it up, fumbles it, somehow got through through the first down. It's unbelievable. No one thought that was going to happen, okay? Nobody's opinion had Arkansas win in that football game, right? We're often wrong about all kinds of stuff, okay? How many times does the winner of the Iowa caucus, which we are obsessing about right now, determine the president? Almost never. Like, like it's all like, think about how many front runners we've already had in, this, uh, in these primaries, right? Like, they come and go in college football, which college football is a poll, okay? It is an opinion poll week to week, right? How many number ones have we had? It's a popularity poll. And in the first year of having a playoff system, we were absolutely wrong. America was wrong. Ohio State, which had the fewest votes of anybody, won the tournament. Okay, America was wrong about Ohio State, about Alabama, about Florida State, and Oregon. Pretty much wrong about everything. Baylor and TCU probably would have won if they were in the tournament. Okay, we just don't know. We don't know anything, basically. Lee Corso, who's, been, who's older than Moses, has been watching college football longer than Moses, like, picks the wrong team every game, every week. He picked LSU last night over Alabama. Okay, I could go on. Expertise and opinions matter nothing. The point is that resting on popular opinion or even unpopular opinions to reliably tell us about where we stand with God is dubious. So where can we go for truth when... As far as where we stand with God, Christianity only offers a rock-solid declaration of what God thinks about you. Other religions offer a checklist. Other religions offer pillars to accomplish, laws to keep, and then scrutinize, have I really done enough? Even some churches say, I can know that I'm saved and secure with God that he loves me if I believe and repent. And I say that too. But what they really are saying is that you need to have faith in your faith. Okay, and so when you have, when you have faith and you become a Christian and then you start to see sin in your life, you kind of got to worry, you know, am I really a Christian? Did I really mean it? And so you might have to go get rebaptized to show you're real, really serious or recommit. Okay? And so there's just no, there's no clarity about what God really thinks about me. And so I'm always in this crisis mode of, wait, do I really believe it or not? Do I believe strong enough or not? Is my faith good enough? Maybe I need a do-over. I need to go on that mission trip to get serious. I need to get rebaptized. Learn to pray better. Read my Bible every day. Maybe I need to give something away. I have to do something more impressive. Maybe I need to give something better away. Oh, I have four automobiles, I'll give one away. Because an automobile is a pretty impressive gift to give away. Right? Car is significant. God ought to be satisfied with that. But that doesn't actually hurt you. Because you really only need one car. Okay, you're fine. 
Okay? That's, it's not the giving, it's not the big gifts, it's not showing you're serious. If you're a guest today and you're not sure about where you stand with God or if He likes you or not, let's make it perfectly simple about how, to do, how that works. The answer to our problem of wanting to be religious without losing is found only in the gospel of Christianity. We all want to be religious without losing anything. But the, that's not the way. We're, it's our, our losing something is not how we enter into God's presence. Us losing something does not free us from our sin. You know what does free us from our sin is a God who loses everything for us. That's what sets us free from our sin. The Father loves a world in rebellion so consumingly that He gives His only begotten Son. You see the plot twist there? We think it's us losing something, but what really set you and me free is believing in a God who gave everything for us. Okay? Assurance of God's love is never in two leptons or one lepton or two gazillion dollars in giving. It's in God's giving an infinite amount for you. Let me repeat that. Assurance of God's love is never in two leptons, one lepton, or in a billion dollars, gazillion dollars, however much you want to give. It's in God's giving an infinite gift for you. Assurance of God's love is what Jesus did on the cross in believing that that was for you and not the crosses we take up. It's not the crosses we take up. It's the cross that God took for us. We tend to be more impressed with what we do, what we see around us, the crosses we take up, the leptons we give up, the small coins we give away. But Jesus' cross was an infinitely bigger deal. You understand that? You see, can, can you just sit there and say, well, how foolish have I been relying upon holy grunts to validate me? Opinions of others when God has definitely spoken. How does one become transformed from the insecure Michael Scott faith, the look at me, faking it in order to get stuff like Ferris Bueller, hoping you can get invited to the pool party, to the legitimate poor widow kind of faith, willing to give everything away? The answer is believing the gospel is for you. Internalizing it. Really believing that is for me. And then starting to live by faith, not by works. If my everything is in the righteousness of God, acquired through faith, then it's not what I have that makes me secure. It's I lack no thing because of Him. If Jesus makes me a part of God's household, a true son then when a deranged gunman points his rifle at my face and says, what do you believe in? And oh, if you say Jesus, I'm going to shoot you. I will gladly say Jesus. Because I have nothing else. I will not dishonor Jesus for the sake of my life. And you won't either. That is because being a part of God's household is everything. You will pay the ultimate sacrifice to honor your Redeemer, friend, maker, defender, because to do so would simply be inconsistent with who you are. He's given you everything because you're everything to Him. Um, 
Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this in Matthew 6. He says, uh, 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you believe the gospel, you see that you're not doing the religious stuff to show off. You're doing it because Jesus has stolen your heart and run off to heaven with it. That's where your heart is. All married people or people in love get this. Their heart has been stolen from them. It's not yours anymore. It's bound up in another person, right? But our problem is that we're sinners in marriage and in love, and we we get amnesia, our hearts do, and we can easily forget our love stories, can't we? Uh Uh-huh. We can do heinous things to one another. We can cheat on each other. We can divorce one another. We can be a constant jerk to one another. You, you can have a big party at your house today and be like, honey, I feel like I need to go to the OU football game tonight and leave her to vacuum and clean up. And then you can be really sorry about that because you felt like that was not loving. Okay? You know what the antidote to that is, to that forgetfulness? is to tell your love story. To remind yourself of the other person's sacrifice. The humiliation he or she endured for you. The vows given for you. The giving for you. It's the gospel. It's the Bible. It's worship. That's the antidote. We've got to tell the story every week, every day. How amazing is it that this woman, who had lost so much already in life, is willing to give up everything. She lost her husband. She had no standing in this society. She can't even get into the, the inner circle of the temple. And here she is believing in the bare promises of God's love for her. And yet you and I have far more than that. We have far more than that. We have the historical reality of, de- of the death of Jesus and his resurrection to demonstrate that God really does love me. He does love you. More than just promises, we have that reality. The Bible tells us, the blood of Jesus tells us so. So where do we go now? If you've seen Jerry Maguire, you know that Jerry is a sports agent. And he sees that his, in his profession, this comes this aha moment where he's like, my profession is evil. And so he writes a paper and he distributes it to everybody in his office And he's like, I'm going to change the game. I'm going to start being an honest agent. And my clients are going to come first. And then he's fired. Because his business sees that he's not going to be profitable anymore. And so as he's cleaning out his desk, he has nothing left of his career. He's lost everything. And then Jerry stands up and makes this impassioned speech. And he says, does anyone want to come with me? I'm going. Anyone want to walk out with me right now? We're going to start something better. Something better out there. You can't see it yet. We're going to do it. Crickets. Silence. And just when he's about to just give up, defeated, you hear a woman's voice. And it's that one accountant in the office. Dorothy Boyd. She says, I'll go. And so she and Jerry and the goldfish... I'll walk out and start their own thing. 
she gave up everything. Dorothy Boyd became like the poor widow. She, she was down to two leptons. She gave it all away. Because her deeper story got into her soul, a greater joy, a greater treasure. She started to believe in something. There's a better thing out there. Let me share with you the prophets, uh, uh, Habakkuk and his word. Uh, it says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. If God is not just the one who's building a pool, who's a neighbor, but he's the God of your salvation, you're in. And though you have nothing, you have everything. You lack no good thing. You're like the poor widow. That poor widow is not poor. She's the richest one in that story. She has no husband, no money, no food, but she has Christ. She has the God of her salvation. Everyone's going to lose their husband, their wife, their money, their food, their treasures, their house, their jobs. It's all going to decay. It's all going to go away. But the love for Jesus never goes away. It's in your heart. If you can lose everything, but you cannot lose Jesus. Let me repeat that. You can lose everything but you cannot lose Jesus because he will never lose you. The proof is the cross. Let's pray.